0: amen we are currently in a series of beyond the building and if this is your first Sunday with us we as a church are hoping to acquire a place of our own this place this space that we are occupying now is a place that we lease one day out of the week on Sunday And so we would love to have a place of our own that would serve as the hub of our activity as we do life together as a community in the community in the Pasadena area. And the reason we called it Beyond the Building is because this building uh, this campaign is not ultimately about a building. Listen, we are not staking our hopes and dreams on a building and what a building can provide for us. We are staking our hope and our dreams on God and all that God is for us. And I so appreciate how Pastor Ray put it in that first sermon. And if you didn't listen to it, I want to encourage you to go and listen. And even last week's sermon on giving. But he reminded us that the building is not our promised land. It's not. Our promised land is God. He is our reward. He is our portion. He is our destiny. And we're going to continue to pursue Him and put our trust in Him and all that He will be for us. And our God will be faithful. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And if you have to look at your table of contents, feel free to do so. It is toward the very back end of your Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And if you're there, if you can stand with me for the reading of God's Word. starting in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, With these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will last, stand forever. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and knows me. God, let that be our boast today. Let that be the boast of our hearts. That we understand you. And that we know you. That we have been given the grace and the mercy to see you. For you, who you are. And all that you are. God, this is your word. This is your very word to us. And Lord, I pray this morning that you would open the eyes of our hearts. God, would you cause us to see things that we in our own flesh cannot see. Spirit of God, I pray that you would move in power in this place. God, that you would illumine our hearts and our minds to see Wonders on you. And God, I pray that you would use this fumbling tongue. That you would use this weak and feeble man. This jar of clay. To proclaim the wonders and the beauty of your gospel. But Father, we acknowledge you. That you are here. Spirit, thank you for being with us. Help us, God, to know you're here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Bible says God has given us three ways to invest in eternity. Three ways to make an eternal impact. Now, the first two are subjects that are readily received by the hearer. In other words, it's welcome from the pulpit. People don't mind the preacher talking about it. But the third, now that one seems to be nobody else's business. Let me explain. The preacher who fails to address the issue of time and the way we spend our time is considered to be not doing his job. Because time is one of those irretrievable values in life that you can only spend once, so you've you got to make the most of it. The second is our talents, our gifts, the unique abilities God has given each of us to build up his body, the church, as well as to bless the world. And it would be a complete dereliction of duty for a preacher to not instruct his congregation on this matter. And the people, for the most part, receive it well. But let the preacher talk about one's treasure or money. And all of a sudden, people start getting uncomfortable. They start squirming in their seats because it's a topic most don't care to hear about. But it's not just the hearer that this topic makes uncomfortable. A well known pastor once wrote an article in Leadership Magazine about the time he addressed the subject of finances at his church. And he wrote in part, I prepared my heart and words and I proclaimed the truth about Christian giving. In conclusion, I apologized for having preached on giving, a reflex action, I suppose. But within 30 minutes two individuals a visitor and a member both reproved me for my apology he said giving to god is a privilege an act of worship and they wondered why i had neutralized a good word with an awkward disclaimer without apology and with no disclaimer I want to talk to you today about money. How we as God's people are to view it and utilize it. Because money is without a doubt one of the biggest things in our lives. It is without a doubt one of the biggest idols of our day, not just in the the world, but in the church. Along with the idols of comfort and safety The idols of sex and power, far too many in the church bow before the idol of money. Now I realize the setting in which this message is being given. We are in the middle of a series on a building campaign. But please know that the aim of this message goes far beyond a building campaign. And guys, I'm being totally sincere about this. I'm not about to give a donor pitch. I'm not up here to do a fundraiser trying to persuade you into giving toward this cause. And we would love for you to give toward this. But my primary concern this morning is not to help meet a budgetary goal. I have a much greater concern. And that concern is for your heart. My concern is for your heart and mine. Especially in this culture and all that it tells us about money. And God is concerned for our hearts. Which is why he doesn't stay silent on it. He actually has quite a bit to say about it. In fact, a third of all the parables Jesus gave deal with the subject of money. A third. He actually talked more about money than about heaven. Did you know that? He talked more about money than hell. Jesus talked more about money than heaven and hell combined. In the New Testament alone, there are over 500 verses on prayer and fewer than 500 verses on faith. But there are over 2,300 verses on money and possessions. Why? Because money and possessions, they have a pull on our lives, on our hearts, that only a few things in life have. And God is deeply concerned for our hearts. He knows that the way we view our money, the way we relate to our money, has serious implications for our lives both in this life as well as in the life to come. Now, I know there are all kinds of people here with us today, members and visitors, kids and professionals, singles, marrieds, those with kids and those without, people who are doing well financially, and people that are struggling, that are really struggling financially. But regardless of where you are, I invite you this morning to listen to what God has to say to us through his word, right where we find ourselves. Here in 1 Timothy 6, Paul is writing to his spiritual son, Timothy, who was a young pastor leading the church in Ephesus about those in the church that were stirring up trouble and dissension by teaching false doctrine. Things that did not align with the gospel. And Paul tells us at the end of verse 5 what these people were after. He says, these are people who are depraved in mind and depraved, deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. What gain, what gain is Paul talking about here? He's talking about financial gain. That's what these people were after. To them, God was simply a means to an end, a monetary end. And you thought prosperity gospel was a modern-day problem. No, it's been around from the very beginning. These people, like so many of the preachers that we see on TV today, were using God to line their pockets and pad their coffers. And Paul exhorts Timothy, stand firm against them, resist them in the church. He then uses this opportunity to do some teaching on the topic of money and he begins in verse 6 by saying now there is great gain in godliness with contentment what paul says here guys is huge this is key everything rides on this on what paul says right here in this one statement And notice he doesn't say it's just gain. It's what? It's great gain. And what's great gain? Godliness. That is our life in God. Right after warning Timothy about these false teachers who are using God as a means of financial gain, Paul says God is not a means to an end for the simple fact that God himself is the end. Don't miss this. You don't live your life in God to get something other than God or something better than God. That made no sense to Paul whatsoever because of the fact that God is the end. He is our great aim. And when you have him, then you have everything. How many of you know that? How many of you know that God is the best part of the meal that life has to offer? That if you have God, then you have everything. You see, the goal of our faith is not to get to God to get something else. Not even heaven. You go to God to get God. That's what we get when we get to God. We get God. And that's why we want to go to heaven because that's where God is. And that's what I tell my kids all the time. The reason heaven's going to be amazing is not because of the streets paved with gold or because we're going to get endless ice cream. Or because you're going to see your grandma again. What makes heaven amazing is that that's where God is. And we're going to see him as he is. And we're going to dwell with him. We're going to be with him forever. That's what makes heaven amazing. And when God is your great gain, guess what you're going to be? You're going to be content. Isn't that what Paul says in Philippians 4? I found the secret of contentment. Paul says, I got it. I I figured out the secret of being content. Whether I have much or little, whether I'm in plenty or in need, I found the secret. And what's the secret? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul says, it doesn't matter what I have or don't have. I have Christ. And because I have Christ, I have everything I need. And that's why he says here in verse 8, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. As long as the necessities are covered, as long as my basic needs are met, I'm good. I'm content because my happiness isn't based on stuff. My joy isn't based on what I have or what I don't have. It's based on Christ. Guys, there is no greater thing for me to say to you than this. You want to be free from the love of money listen you want to be free from the love of money then be satisfied in the love of christ all that jesus is for you and when you are satisfied in him when he is your greatest gain that's when money loses its grip on you that's when you start living very differently in this world And that's when your hands start going like this. The perfect example of this is the Macedonian believers that Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 8. These were believers, people who were deeply impoverished. deeply They were abysmally poor. A modern equivalent would be like the people who live in the trash heaps of India. Have you guys seen this? They live in the garbage dump, and that's what they eat. That's what they collect for a living. It would be equivalent to that. But when these believers in Macedonia hear about the mother church in Jerusalem, how they're struggling, how we're in desperate need, you know what they did? They asked Paul if they can give towards their relief. No correction. They begged him. Paul says, they pleaded with me. They pleaded with me to take whatever they had, whatever money they had. They said, Paul, please take it and give it to our brethren in Jerusalem. How does that happen? Because that kind of stuff does not happen in this world. People who have little to nothing do not give to people who have absolutely nothing. How can people who have so little hold on to their money so loosely? Paul gives us the answer in verse 2. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Their abundance of what? Joy. There it is. Their overflowing joy led to overflowing generosity. Joy in what? in jesus and because they were alive in him because they were satisfied in him because he was their great gain they didn't need stuff to be happy guys here's something important we need to understand people don't start giving when they have more money that is a huge myth i've heard so many people over the years say a When I have more, that's when I'll give. No, you won't. Listen, if you're not a giver now, if you're not a giver now, you won't be a giver when you have more. And research proves this. Study after study show that the more people make, the less they give. Because of the simple fact that the more you have, the more you want, not less. That's how the human heart apart from God works. You see, people don't start giving when they have more money. They start giving when they have more joy. And Paul here in our passage says, when you are content in God, when God is your great gain, when he is your satisfaction, you're not going to stake your happiness in stuff. Which you can't even take with you he says in verse 6 For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world that's true is it not we came into the world but naked and that's how we're going to leave we brought nothing into this world and we will take nothing with us when we leave the world with all the respect and i mean this with all the respect Queen Elizabeth took not a single thing with her when she died. Nothing. She took not a single piece of jewelry from her crown. Not a penny from her millions. Not a single luxury from her opulent life as queen. all that she amassed, all that she gained over the 70 years she reigned as a queen of england did nothing for her when she stood before the king of the universe and paul's warning here is this be careful not to place value in things that in the eternal scheme have no value be careful not to assign value to things that in the eternal scheme have no value all that we in the world use to measure people's value in their success or their net worth all of that will mean squat when we stand before God all that we pursue all that we spend our whole lives chasing after to acquire none of that will matter anything when we stand before God except for what we did with it For his cause and for his glory. Now in verse 9, Paul goes on to issue a warning, a stir warning. To those who are looking for contentment and joy, not in God, but in money. Look again at verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin. And destruction. Paul here issues a stern, forceful warning to those who desire to be rich. Be careful. And that's what I want to say to you today on the, on the authority of God's word. Christian, be careful. Be careful. Be careful to not make money your aim. Be careful to not make it your goal to be well-off, to have nicer things, and to live more comfortably. Be careful that your life is not about that. This is the same message Jesus gave in Luke 12 when he said, watch out. Watch out. Jesus says, watch out. Be on guard. Be on guard. Guard your heart. Be on guard against all kinds of greed where one's life does not consist in the abundance of its possessions. Now I fully realize that even as I say this, that this goes totally against the grain of everything you and I hear in our culture. Everywhere we look, everywhere we turn, we are told that no, life does consist in the abundance of our possessions. And sadly, tragically, unfortunately, that message has not been drowned out in the church. Let's just put everything on the table. Much of the church culture in America, specifically here in L.A., which is the epicenter of affluenza, the disease of affluence, much much of the church culture here in America and here in LA, we are deeply committed to comfort. Deeply. Many in the church pursue wealth with the same vigor as the rest of the world. We devote our lives to building bigger barns, larger savings accounts, and 401ks. Avoid risk, maximize reward, live your best life now, we say. And this is success according to myriads, myriads of churchgoers in our day. But Jesus tells us to watch out and to be on guard against all kinds, all forms of greed. And what's interesting, guys, is that Jesus never gives us kind of warning when it comes to other sins like adultery jesus never says watch out be careful that you aren't committing adultery why because he doesn't have to when you're in bed with someone who's not your spouse you know it you don't say halfway through it wait i think this might be adultery you know it is you know it is but jesus warned time and time and time and time again Against greed. Why? Here's why. Because almost no one thinks it's true of them. Almost no one thinks it's true of them. Tim Keller writes As a pastor, I've had people come to me to confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin. Almost. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spent too much money on myself. I think my greed, lust for money, is harming my family, my soul, and the people around me. Greed hides itself from its victim. The money God's modus operandi includes blindness to your own heart. He goes on to say, why can't anyone in the grip of greed see it? The counterfeit God of money uses powerful sociological and psychological dynamics. Once you are able to afford to live in a particular neighborhood, send your children to its schools and participate in its social life, you will find yourself surrounded by quite a number of people who have more money than you. Now you don't compare yourself to the rest of the world. You compare yourself to those in your bracket. The human heart always wants to justify itself, and this is one of its easiest ways. You say, "I don't live as well as him, or her, or them." My means are modest compared to theirs. You can reason and think like that, no matter how lavish you are living. Guys, isn't that the truth? We are constantly looking to justify ourselves that's just that's the human heart we're constantly looking to justify our choices and the way we justify the use of our money is by comparing ourselves not to those who have less than us but to those who have more than us those who live in bigger houses and drive better cars and wear nicer clothes and go on better trips And compared to them, I don't seem greedy at all. And that's why the vast majority of us see our spending as justified. And why we see our level of materialistic comfort as a necessity. And this is where Keller says that our desire for money points to something deeper in our hearts. Listen, he calls money a surface idol that we pursue to satisfy a more foundational need, which he calls our deep idols. For instance, some people want to be rich so that they can feel that they're in control of their lives. They have a deep need to feel secure, and they look to money to meet that need. And people like that typically live modestly. They're not lavish spenders. No, they try to save every penny they can. Some want money because they need to feel important. They want to be respected. And money is a way to meet that need for significance. Others want money so that they can have access to things that they think will make them more beautiful and attractive so that they can meet their need for acceptance and approval. And people like that typically aren't savers. No, they spend lavishly. But in every case, money is a surface idol that seeks to satisfy a deep idol in our hearts. And that's why they say roughly 90% of uh, consumer buying patterns, behavior, is unconscious. Meaning we don't buy stuff for their functionality. You know what we buy them for? For what they say about us. And what we think that thing will do for us. That's why Jesus called money a rival God. He said in Luke 16 13, no one can serve two masters. Listen, no one can serve two masters. Or you he will either hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Did you hear that? This is Jesus. He says you can't serve god and money you can't be devoted to both why because money is a rival god money competes with god for our hearts and it promises to give what only god can give our, our need our foundational need for security and significance acceptance and approval says don't look at god look to me look at me and i will give it to you and that's why paul speaks so strongly and force- Forcibly, forcibly, is that a word? Forcefully, forcefully (laughs) against the desire for riches. He says again, verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, a trap, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And he's talking here about eternal ruin, eternal destruction. Guys, this is serious stuff. Listen. This is not something to be trifled with. This is extremely, extremely serious. And this is just the desire to be rich. Paul is talking about the desire to be rich. Now that desire alone can lead to eternal destruction. How much more, how much more does it apply to those who are already rich? And in case you're thinking this doesn't apply to me because I am rich, let me remind you that you are. I am. I know many of us don't feel rich. We don't think we're rich. But compared to the rest of the world, we are very rich. This applies to every single one of us here in this room. And this is the same warning Paul issues in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't be tricked. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy. Nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is our go-to passage, our favorite passage to denounce homosexuality in our culture. But we are so stinking guilty of selective moral outrage. Because we turned a complete blind eye to the prevalence of greed in the church. We enact church discipline for unrepentant sexual sin as we should. But I've never seen a church carry out church discipline for unrepentant greed. You know why? Because we don't think it's all that serious. We just honestly don't. We don't really believe Paul on this. We don't really believe Jesus when he says that you've got a better chance of shoving a camel through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. We don't really believe that. Truth is, we don't see materialism and and affluence as barriers to God. You know how we see it? We see them as blessings from God. We see them as blessings, we see them as signs and evidences of God's blessing in our lives. But brothers and sisters I'm here to tell you that God's word tells us otherwise it tells us that money and wealth have a blinding effect on our lives It keeps us from seeing what really matters God's word tells us that our earthly riches can keep us from eternal treasure that's the destructive power of money that's the pool of money it can keep us it can lead to eternal consequences and that's why Paul says what he says in verse 10 that this craving for money this craving for more has led some to abandon the faith to walk away from god and i bet some of you here know people that have done just that people that have walked away from the church people that have walked away from god in their pursuit of money in their pursuit of riches and just before that he says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil notice he doesn't say money itself is a root of all kinds of evil The Bible never says money is inherently or intrinsically evil. No, it's the love of money that leads to all kinds of evils. And that's true, isn't it? Guys, think of all the senseless, harmful things that people do for money. All the evil in the world that is caused by the love of money. Cheating, fraud, extortion, blackmail, prostitution, pornography. Human trafficking, exploitation of children, oppression of the poor, murder, divorce, and I can go on and on and on. How many families, how many of our families have been torn apart because of money? How many fathers are neglecting their children in their pursuit of riches? You name it, money is a breeding ground for all kinds of sins and offenses. So, what should we then do with our money? What are we to do with what God has given us? I'm glad you asked. Jump down to verse 17. Look at what Paul says. As for the rich in this present age, again, that's you and me charge them not to be haughty do not be prideful nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but on who god set your hope on god who richly provides us with everything to enjoy wouldn't you look at that paul here tells us that things in and of themselves aren't bad no god in his grace gives good gifts for us to enjoy you know what that means when you sit down to have a nice steak dinner you shouldn't feel bad we shouldn't feel guilty when we take a trip somewhere europe asia africa wherever because god in his grace gives good gifts to his children for them to enjoy and that's clear but here's the but they're not just meant for our enjoyment And that's where tragically it ends for many of us. We say, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for your gifts to me. And we end it there. But it's not meant to stop there. It's not meant to end with us. No, it's not. It's not meant to be hoarded by us. Oh, Christian, it's meant to be given away. Paul says in verse 18, they are to do good. Oh, be rich in good works to be generous and ready to share the storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life here Paul gives us the antidote for materialism the antidote for greed the antidote for the love of money and you know what it is it's generosity you want to be free from the love of money Give generously. Give sacrificially. Give extravagantly what God has given you. The Bible says that's how you make sure. That's how you ensure money doesn't have a hold on you. And that's how you take hold of true life. It's right here. By doing the exact opposite of what the world tells you. The world says you take hold of life by hoarding it for yourself. God says, no, 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 it's the opposite. You want to take hold of true life? Give it away. This would be a good place for me to pause and do some teaching on the topic of tithing. Because this is a primary way we are to give. And tithing, for those of you who might not be familiar with the term, is what we see in the Bible, namely in the Old Testament. As to what God's people were expected to give, the word tithe literally means a tenth part or ten percent and in the Old Testament we see God commanding his people to set aside ten percent of their earnings their income all of that came in ten percent to the Lord why to teach his people to put him first in their lives and to remind his people that the first the best and the last and everything in between belongs to him and God used the people's tithes to meet the practical needs Of the community. Now that's the Old Testament. We come to the New Testament. And we are a people under a new covenant. And the question becomes, what are we to make of the tithe? Are we as people under grace? Are we supposed to tithe like people under law? Well, in the New Testament, there is no specific command to tithe. It's only mentioned one time in the entire New Testament. One time it's in Luke 11 and the parallel passage in Matthew 23. And it's where Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. He says to them, woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. So Jesus basically says, you guys tithe, and you ought to be doing that. But you're missing it. You're missing the whole point because you don't care about justice. You don't demonstrate the love of God to the needy among you. So while Jesus does not specifically command a tithe, he does imply that they ought to be doing it. And this is where some say, well, even if that's the case, Jesus here is still operating in an old covenant framework because he has yet to go to the cross. He has yet to give his life for the sins of the world, and he has yet to inaugurate the new covenant, and that's why he's still endorsing tithing. And this is where I honestly question what's behind it. Why are there some in the church that are just so opposed to the notion of a tithe? Now, I do think there are those who want to be clear on what the scriptures teach. They're not opposed to giving at all. They just want to be clear, accurate with what the Bible says, and I'm totally down with that. I'm total. I have no problem with that whatsoever. Truth is, tithing is a principle under law that is not reinstituted under grace. With that said, I believe that for many who oppose the notion of a tithe, it's because 10% feels like a little too much to give. 10% of my, 10, 10, 10, 10% of all that I bring in, I'm supposed to give. And you see this in the question that I, as a pastor, have gotten multiple times. Pastor James, am I supposed to tithe my gross to my net? Now, some people ask that because they genuinely don't know and want to know. But a lot of the times when they ask that question, what they're really asking is this How much of my money can I keep for myself? How much of my money do I have to give? How much of my income can I keep for myself and not get in trouble with God? That, more often than not, is the real question. And my question to them, and my question to all of us here is this. Listen. If tithing was a principle under the old covenant, before Jesus came, before the sinless Son of God, God lived and died for us. What do you think the standard should be now? If tithing was the principle, those who did not have yet the Messiah, the Redeemer, what do you think it should be now for those who know the Redeemer? I'll tell you this much. It shouldn't be lower. It should not be lower. You cannot convince me that it should be lower. I can't tell you what percentage of your income to give. But I feel pretty confident that it shouldn't be less than what God's people under the law are required to give. And you see example after example after example of this in the New Testament. Especially in the book of Acts. And by this point, the new covenant has been inaugurated. The spirit has come down to Pentecost and the man, the, the preaching the gospel. And it's spreading like wildfire. Our people are giving their lives to Christ and not just their hearts, they're giving their stuff. We see the first picture of this in Acts 2 and what we see is people not giving a tithe but selling their possessions. You know what they're selling? Their houses. They're selling their lands. They're giving up far more than a tithe. And we're told in Acts chapter 4 that the People's generosity was so extravagant, so generous, so sacrificial that there was not a needy person among them. Not one person among thousands had a need. Why? Because God's people gave. This is the picture of giving we are given in the New Testament under the the new covenant. Oh, what a far cry that is from the picture of giving we see in the church today. The average Christian in America today gives 2.5 percent of their income to the church. And I think that's a generous estimate. 2.5 percent. Those making between 75,000 and 99,000, only one percent of them tithe. Giving today percentage-wise is less than the giving during the depths of the Great Depression. With many in the church not giving hardly anything at all. What happened? What happened? How is there such a contrast? As what are we missing? What are we not seeing that the early believers saw? Where's the disconnect? You and I live in a world where our heroes are people who almost always start out poor but end up rich. We love the rats to riches story, do we not? Our heroes start out poor, but they end up filthy rich. There's another world where the hero starts out rich, but he ends up, dirt poor. That world is the kingdom of God, and the hero is King Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul says, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, had infinite wealth infinite wealth but if he had held on to it you and I would have died in our spiritual poverty but Paul says Jesus gave up his riches he chose to give up all his treasure in heaven why why in order to make you his treasure so that you would be his treasured possession forever and Paul says, when you understand that, when you get that, when you see all that God, Jesus, gave, gladly gave up for you, when you see him die on the cross to make you his treasure, that will make him your treasure. And that's when money will cease to be your treasure. And Paul said this to the Corinthians to encourage them the, to, to excel in the grace of giving. He says, You guys excel in so many areas. But there's one area where you lack and that's in giving and this was a church that was wealthy and so he says in light of the grace the grace the amazing grace that god has shown you in his son let that grace now be reflected in your giving and that's what i want to say to you living way in light of the grace that you and i have been given in jesus let that let that grace now be reflected in your giving. Some of you have never really given. You claim Jesus as Lord, Savior, and treasure. And you consider living where you're home. But giving is not a part of your Christian worship. I want to encourage you today to start, start giving, and start with the tithe. No matter your income, no matter how much or little, commit to giving a tenth part, a tenth percent of your income. And I want to encourage you to see the tithe as the base. It's not the ceiling, it's the floor. It's where Christian giving starts. So, Christians start giving. Some of you give, but your giving is inconsistent. Your giving is inconsistent. Probably based on what you think you can afford to give or not give. If that's you, I want to encourage you today to start giving consistently, make a commitment. Make it a priority to give to the Lord your first and your best, not your last and your leftovers. And I'm so thankful for the person in my life who demonstrated this to me, and that's my mom. My mom was the most generous person I've ever known. Oh, she was such a giver. We grew up poor. My family and I, we didn't have much growing up. And some of you know our story. And my mom worked all kinds of jobs to provide for us kids. Like working the graveyard shift at a bank. Making tacos at a taco shack. She was so faithful to give. Every week, my mom had something. She never missed the tide. In fact, whenever, whenever my mom got a brand new job, she had this practice. She gave the entire first paycheck to the Lord. It didn't make any financial sense. But that was my mom's way of giving her first fruits to the Lord. And I'm convinced that that is why God always provided for our needs. We didn't have a lot, but we had enough. We always had enough. And we never went without. No matter how much or how lean the times were. So I want to encourage you. Give consistently. Now some of you give consistently. You tithe regularly. But here's the truth. Your giving is kind of safe. Your giving is kind of safe you give out of the surplus of your wealth what you can afford to give. In other words, it doesn't cost you much. It doesn't really challenge your faith. If that's you, I want to encourage you today to give sacrificially. Listen to how C.S. Lewis put it. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small there ought to be things that we should like to do but cannot do because our giving excludes them. In other words, give till it hurts. Give till it costs you something. Like David said to God, he said, Lord, I will not give you anything that does not cost me something. And I want to say this as the Lord gives you more and more, please hear me. As the Lord gives you more and more, I want to encourage you to resist the temptation to believe that that means you need to live nicer or better or more comfortably. Christian, resist that temptation. Resist the temptation to live nicer or better or more comfortably. Let me also say this make a lot of money some of you are placed in situations some of you have opportunities to make a ton of money christian i exhort you on the authority of god's word make a boatload make it make a ton of money make as much money as you can so that you can give away as much as you can for the good of the world and the glory of God. John Piper said the world is not impressed when Christians get rich and say, thank you, God. They are impressed when God is so satisfying that we give away our riches for Christ's sake and count it as gain. That's my prayer for you and me. It's my prayer for our church. That we would be a church, that we would be a, a people that just, we give away our riches. Like the Macedonians, man, our hands are like this. They're open and we give away and we count it as gain. Why? Why? Because we are satisfied in God. Because Jesus is our greatest gain. And because we understand that this world is not our home. We understand that. That this world is not our home. That no, we're strangers. We're aliens in a foreign land. We're sojourners just passing through this place. This is not our home. We are on our way to our permanent home, our eternal home. Listen. Listen this is all there is if this world is all there is then you should do everything humanly possible to make it as nice and as comfortably as you can you should do that if this world is all there is but if you are one who believes that no this world isn't all there is this world and our life in it is transient and eternity, eternity awaits us. If you are one who believes that, if you really believe that, then it makes no sense whatsoever. It makes no sense whatsoever to invest your life. The one life, the one life that God has given you, the one precious life you have been given by Christ. Oh, it makes no sense to invest your life in something that is fleeting. Remember what Pastor Ray said last our lives are but a shadow, it's a mist, it's vapor, the Bible says our lives are like grass, it's like a flower of the field, the wind passes over it and it is gone. Just like that, that's how quick it is, that's how fleeting it is, we're here one day and we're gone the next. That's what God's word says our life on this earth is like. And that's what this tattoo on my arm is about. I got a couple of tattoos on my sabbatical. I went into it wanting to paint. Some of you remember. I didn't paint. All my creative juices got redirected getting some more ink, but this is the first one I got, and it's a black rose, and underneath are two words, it's in Latin, memento mori, it means remember you must die, remember you must die, and that's what a black rose symbolizes, black rose is a symbol of death. And I got it to remind myself that life is short and eternity long. And every time I look in the mirror, every time I look down on my arm, I'm reminded that I'm just a breath away. I'm just one breath away. I'm just one breath away from eternity, from standing before God. And so I want to live my life with that in mind. I want to live my life, my whatever is remaining, I want to live my life with that day in mind. I want to live with the end in mind. And Christian, I want to encourage you to do the same. Live your life with the end in mind. See and spend your money with the end in mind, knowing that the day is coming when you will stand before God. It's not a matter of if it's a matter of when. There is coming a day when you will breathe your last, and the next breath you take in will be in the presence of Almighty God. And on that day, on that day in that moment, you're going to be called to account. You're going to be held to account. Of what you did with his stuff. How you stewarded his money. His stuff. His possessions. And my prayer for you and my prayer for me. Is that we would hear these words, well done. Well done.
1: Good and faithful
0: servant." Well done. You've been faithful over a little. I will now set you over much. Enter. Into the joy of our master. Oh, Christian, may you, may I, hear those words from our God and King. God, help us to see you as... Is not just gain, but the greatest gain. That there really is nothing better than you. And God, I, Spirit, I just pray right now, Lord, that you would bring about a spirit of repentance. Father, forgive us. God, forgive me for worshiping at the idol, at the altar of the idol of money. Forgive us, God, for our preoccupation with it. Forgive us, God, for our pursuit of it, to the neglect of the things that matter most. God, I pray pray that you would bring about a spirit of repentance. And Father, would you free us? Would you free our hearts? God, free us from the love of money. Help us, God, to be satisfied in you. That, Jesus, you would be our greatest treasure. That you would be what preoccupies us. That you would be what we daydream about. You. And I pray, God, that that would free us to live differently in this world. And God, that we would impress the people around us not by saying, look at all that God has given me. giving it away for Christ's sake and counting it as he because we have Christ and because we have him we have everything we want and everything we need God lastly I thank you for every person in this room mm, that gives God I said it before, I'm going to say it again. Some of the greatest givers I know belong to this church. Thank you, God. Thank you for those who give beyond their means. Thank you, God, for those who give faithfully. And I pray, God, your blessing upon them. And I pray, God, your blessing upon all of us, wherever we may be. God, God, I pray for conviction, but not for guilt. I pray against shame. I pray, God, that your perfect love, your perfect love for them right now, regardless of what they've given or not given, I pray, God, that they would know your perfect love. And that that perfect love would cast out fear. And that in joy, in cheerfulness, it would come and lay down not just their hearts, but their treasure. Because you are treasure. You are. Thank you, God. Thank you for giving us good gifts. Thank you, God, most of all, for Jesus. And thank you, Jesus, for giving up infinite wealth. So that in you we might be rich in all the ways that matter. Thank you, Lord. We bless you.